Please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 11. Your bulletins have printed Luke chapter 8, I believe, and that is a misprint. It is uh, Luke chapter 11. I'm going to read verses 1 through 13 of Luke 11, but our focus this morning is going to be on verses 5 through 13 in particular. Luke chapter 11. Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And he said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, Give us each day our daily bread, and forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us, and lead us not into temptation. And he said to them, Which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, Friend, lend me three loaves, for a friend of mine has arrived on a journey, and I have nothing to set before him. And he'll answer from within, Do not bother me, the door is now shut, and my children are with me in bed." I cannot get up and give you anything. I tell you, though he will not get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. And I tell you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Why am I preaching on this parable this morning? A couple of reasons. I'm certainly not going to continue preaching on Hebrews. I'll leave that to Bill. But this last summer, when most of the college students were away, the college students that remained here, we did a Bible study that was over the parables. And this in particular was just a rich parable on prayer that I actually prepared for but was never able to teach on this. And so this is an opportunity for me to uh, look at this parable. But in particular, there's another reason, if I can be more honest. It's because in my own prayer life, I find prayer very difficult And I thought, for me, this would be great to uh, study a passage on prayer. But before we jump into the parable, there is some groundwork that that we must look at. The question is, why did Jesus speak in parables? There's no simple answers to this, but there is a few things that we can say with certainty. First, parables were very memorable stories, and so they were great teaching tools. But in Matthew 13, the disciples asked Jesus, why he speaks to the crowd in parables. And Jesus' response is that those in the crowds, many of them, have hearts that are dulled and ears that are closed. And so since they did not treasure the words that Jesus spoke, he veiled his words through parables to those who had hard hearts. Further, parables were stories that called forth an immediate response, an immediate self-examination to the listeners. As an example of this, I'll share a a parable that was once directed towards me. It was my freshman high school science class. The teacher was Coach Schweitzer. 
Now, students intuitively know that there's some teachers that you can mess with. Coach Schweitzer was not one of those teachers, but I was slow to learn this reality. I had a few things going against me. First, I thought it would be cool to play the class clown in there. Also, I was a basketball player, and he was the wrestling coach, and I was convinced that he thought most of us basketball players were sissies. And finally, um, I had three older brothers that had already been through Coach Schweitzer's class, and he had a good relationship with all of them, and so I thought I was special. So one day, as he's in the middle of his class uh, lecturing, I interrupted his class once again with what I thought was a pretty witty comment. Apparently, he didn't think so. Because right at that moment, he stopped lecturing. He looked straight up and just paused. And you could, you could hear a pin drop. I think all the air was sucked out of the room at that moment. <laughs> and I'll never forget what he said. He goes, Donahoe, I once had a dog that barked when I didn't want it to. And I shot it. How does that apply to your life? <laughs> and that is what parables do right there. There's an immediate response. They call us to examine ourselves. And right then and there, I truly had to examine myself. In the parable that Jesus tells, it is a story, and he invites the disciples to examine themselves, to examine themselves and their understanding of God when it comes to prayer. The disciples asked Jesus, to teach them to pray in verse 1. And then in verses two, and four, 2 through 4, we see Jesus give them what we call the Lord's Prayer. He teaches them what to say, what to ask for. But then he offers a parable that follows this. It's a fascinating parable intended to engage their minds and their hearts concerning God's willingness not only to hear but to act on their prayers. Do you believe that God always and underline always hears and acts on your prayers. What is your view of God's character when it comes to prayer? Are you excited to approach God in prayer knowing that he desires to hear and act? Or do you lack discipline? Are you weak in your prayer lives? Often, our weakness in prayer is not simply because we lack discipline. Though oftentimes that's what we believe. Oh, if I was just more disciplined. Oftentimes our lack of discipline is because we have a wrong perspective on God when it comes to prayer, which keeps us from being quick to go to him in prayer. A few years ago, I was in my third year of seminary. And Tiffany and I, late one evening, were venting our frustrations over that season of life. Uh, seminary was grueling. I was, uh, theology books were coming out of my ears. I was also seeking to renovate a house at that point with no prior experience. So I was way in over my head. Uh, parenting small children, again, way in over my head. And uh, all this was causing great tension within our marriage. And so I just looked at Tiffany and I said, I am through with prayer. And I went to bed. I was so discouraged and so frustrated. Life felt too difficult. God felt too distant. I was angry and frustrated with myself over my lack of prayer life. And I was upset with God as well. What I was experiencing that night was unbelief. Unbelief that God cared about me and my struggles. Unbelief 
that I had earned God's ear. Unbelief that God hears and answers our prayer. Can you relate with some of these? So why pray? I felt that I could identify in Lamentations 3.44, Jeremiah says this. He cries out to God, you have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. What a great picture. You have wrapped yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can pass through. Doesn't it feel that way at times, seasons in life? That God has wrapped himself in a prayer or in a cloud and we cannot get through. We all struggle with unbelief. And like a thief, unbelief comes into our prayer life and it robs us of desire and joy in prayer. And let's be honest, we often find ourselves on the go, too busy for prayer. And sometimes prayer just, quite frankly, feels boring. And we can be lazy in this area. See, I believe there's a tension that we face in prayer. The tension is this. We know that God is good and he has our best interest in mind. We know that truth. And even Romans 8.28 says, for those, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together according to good. We know that verse. But then why do we lack faith at times? Why do we wonder if God will pull through? Why do we seek to depend on ourselves so often instead of going to God in dependence upon him? Why don't we spend more time in prayer? The tension, I believe, is that intellectually we know the truth, that God is good. But often our experiences can tell us a different story. When we're in the midst of a trial, something difficult that's going on, in our hearts we can be very suspicious of God. Very suspicious that he cares enough to pull through for us. But the reality is, God is a God who loves to pull through. And we see this throughout the scriptures from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. It is one dramatic story of God pulling through for his people. God loves to bless those who earnestly seek him. Though I must pause here and say that oftentimes God's way of blessing and pulling through may be different than how we would want God to pull through and to bless us. But we have to submit to his will, trust his timing, understand that God is a God that does pull through and that his eternal plan is perfect and good. With all that said, let's turn to Luke 11 and see what we can learn about the character of God. And as we approach a, as we approach a parable, one thing that is important for us to take note of is the characters within the story. Typically, there is one point corresponding to each character. And so it is good for us to ask the question in parables, who am I in this story? Or maybe which character best represents me? In this parable, we have two main characters. First, there's the friend inside the house. That's the character that represents God. Or we should say by way of contrast, will represent God. We'll see that in a minute. The second character is the man seeking bread. This, this character would represent the disciples. Also, this character would represent us. So let's first consider the friend inside the house, the one who represents God. In verses 5 through 7, Jesus poses a great rhetorical question. 
And if you have your Bibles, if you look at the end of verse 7, to get the gist of it, it should end in a, in a question mark. The ESV, I believe, gets this right. And so as I read this, I'm going to read it with the, the whole thing with the question in mind at the end. Verse 5. He said to them, which of you who has a friend will go to him at midnight and say to him, friend, lend me three loaves, that a friend of mine has arrived on a journey and I have nothing to set before him. He'll answer from within, do not bother me. The door is now shut and my children are with me in bed. I cannot get, get up and give you anything, question mark, right there. The question Jesus answer, is asking is, does the friend inside the house give graciously or grudgingly? And isn't this an important question for our prayer lives? Whether we view God as gracious towards us or as reluctant towards us will play itself out in our prayer lives. In Jesus' parable, the answer is that that the person inside the house is reluctant to get up. And in this context, we might be able to understand why. A Palestinian house, a typical house back then in that time, would have had only one room would have been a fairly small house, probably had a small window, dirt floor, and in that one room, it would have been divided into two sections. Two-thirds of the section would be on level ground, but a third of the section of the house would have been raised with a platform, and on it, the, uh, the stove, the charcoal stove, would burn all night to keep them warm. Also, that's where the family would sleep on, family, on uh, sleeping mats, and they would huddle there together for warmth. But also, this is an interesting point, that the custom in that time was also for them to bring their livestock in with them into the house. So you would have in these villages uh, at night, the hens, the goats, you name it, whatever livestock they might have had would be inside the house with them, all staying warm together. Needless to say, getting up in the middle of the night would be no small task. If you wake the family goat, you've got issues. In verse 7, the friend responds, and we can understand why, to the knock of the door with, don't bother me. Jesus is asking his disciples, which of you has a friend like this? In this rhetorical question lies the point, a major point of this parable. The answer is, nobody has a true friend like this, and our true God is not like this. Jesus is challenging their perception of God's character when it comes to answering our prayers. The heart of the question is, do the disciples and do we understand God to be reluctant towards us or to be gracious and generous towards us? But in this question to his disciples and to us, Jesus labels our fear. Sometimes we act as if God is a cranky, stingy old man reluctant to rise for our needs and our desires. Often we hesitate to approach God as if he's going to be utterly passive towards us, potentially ignoring us, or worse yet, that God would fight against us rather than for us. Have you ever had a knock on your door at midnight? To share a story, this did happen to me. It was November 24th in 1992, I remember well because it was my 21st birthday, I was here at KU, I was living in the Pi Kappa Alpha fraternity, and just to give a little background, I was at that point in my life, in the early dating stages 
with Tiffany. And I was just at that point in my life wanting to grow in my relationship with Christ and live faithfully to Him. So I was not exactly looking for a wild party that night. I was hoping that my birthday would actually come and go underneath the radar so that my fraternity brothers would not know. Because I've seen, I'd seen what happened before. Maybe many of you on this side have seen what happens before when it comes time. There was a knock at my door, and it was my fraternity brothers, and they were basically calling out to me because they wanted to come and celebrate uh, my birthday. With, uh, they wanted me to celebrate with them, to which I did not answer. I remained silent because I knew what was coming. I had seen it before. I knew that if they got in there and got me out of that room, they would seek to uh, put me in my birthday suit and stick me in the Cayo fountain on campus. <laughs> and it was November. Because the goal was to humiliate as best you could. And so I remained completely silent in my room. My mind started racing as they was knocking. What do I do if the door opens? Do I hide? Actually, it's a 10 by 10 room, so they will surely find me. (laughs) Do I jump out the window? No, it's on the third level. I would die. Do I call 911? Wait. These are my friends. I can't do that to them. So my mind's racing. When all of a sudden, click, the door opens. They got the master key. The enemy was now approaching. (laughs) Picture a WWF cage match going on with four guys trying to get one guy out of a room. I was kicking. I was hitting with all my might. And I'm not promoting violence. I I promise you that. I'm promoting survival. (laughs) It was a brutal wrestling match. But I had two advantages. One was utter fear. I knew that if I got out of that room, the Kyle Fountain was going to be a terrible experience. And why the Kyle Fountain? I don't know if I mentioned this. My wife was a Kyo, to make matters worse. Um, I even remember at one point holding on to my bedpost as they were trying to drag me out of there. My knuckles were completely white as I looked at them. And I thought about giving in because I was so tired. But every time I did, I just pictured the cold Kyle fountain. And I hung on and I kicked some more. But I had another advantage. And that was my friend's lack of sobriety. So after a while, they decided that it would be more advantageous for them to go partake of some more beverage than it would be to continue receiving cheap shots from me. I am going somewhere with this story, I do promise. (laughs) I believe that this is a picture of how we view God at times. We're knocking in our prayer lives, but he's not answering. He seems mysteriously silent. He seems reluctant. And at times, it might feel as if we're in a cage match with God, wrestling. And he's fighting against us rather than for us. But the scriptures are clear. God doesn't fight against us. He fights with us, and he fights for us. If you keep your finger in this passage, turn to Hebrews 7.25. Part of my motivation to turn in there is I realize for some of you, we've been in Hebrews long enough, if I don't give you at least one passage, you'll be twitching before you get out of here. So Hebrews 7.25 says this, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. It's an amazing passage. In other words, Jesus, 
even at the right hand of the Father, he prays for us. He defends us by making intercession for us. And we have a wonderful illustration of this in Luke chapter 22. If you could turn there. Luke chapter 22, verses 31 and 32. To give a little bit of context for this, uh, Jesus is eating the Passover meal with his disciples right prior to the crucifixion. And the disciples are arguing over who is to be among them the greatest. To which scripture does not tell us this, but my guess is Simon Peter was putting his two cents in on this one as well. And at that moment, Jesus looks over at Peter and he says to him in verse 31, Simon, Simon, as in Simon Peter, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when, you, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. It never occurred to Peter that he needed prayer. But Jesus fought for him through prayer. And Peter did not fail ultimately, nor will we, because Jesus fights for us. Now Satan, recognize, Satan would love for us to believe that it is God that fights against us but it is not God that fights against us. It is Satan that fights against us, and it is God that indeed fights for us as a loving Heavenly Father. We also must recognize that unlike the friend in this parable, God does not have to be forced out of bed. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 121. This is, uh, I read this for the call to worship, and we sang that beautiful song of Psalm 121 as well in our worship. Psalm 121, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. I want to pick up especially in verse 3. He, he will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber before. He who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. Do you see here that with God it is never midnight? With Jesus, it is never midnight. It is never a bad time for him, for us to approach him with prayer. If you remember in my illustration, as I was clinging to my bedpost and my just grasping as tight as I could, that's not a picture of God with our prayer requests and our blessings. God is not in heaven holding on to our prayers and our blessings and keeping them from us. He's not white-knuckled. And think about the prayer requests that we... Think about the things that are burdening us. It could be relationships that we have, whether no relationship or a dating relationship or a marriage, or it could be our jobs, or it could be struggles with studies. It could be money problems, health issues, 
home life issues, parenting woes, even the burdens that we have, maybe someone we're praying for that's not a believer. God does not hold on to those prayer requests, keeping them from us, but rather he seeks to give graciously and generously to those who seek him. But the key is, this is important, it's according to his will, which is far better than our will, and it's according to his timing, which is far better than our timing. And the question is, can we trust him in his timing and in his will? Jesus also tells us of God's graciousness at the end of verse 8. Back in Luke 11, verse 8. He says that he will rise and give him whatever he needs. It's an informative contrast. Basically, if a cranky neighbor is reluctant to rise and be generous, how much more, but he does, how much more would God, who is gracious, rise and provide for the needs of his children? In other words, God is better than the best friend or the best neighbor. Listen to what Jesus goes on to say in verse 13. He says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? How much more? The comparison here is between an earthly father and a heavenly father. And by way of illustration, how many of you out there that are parents love to be mean to your children? Love to be cruel to them? Neglect them? Give them a hard lesson so they can learn. No, that's absurd. No reasonable parent, no reasonable parent mocks his child in such heartless ways. And if you and I, as sinners, want the best for our children, how much more does our God, who has no capacity to sin against us, want the best for his children? I do believe that our horizontal relationships in this life do affect, at times, our vertical relationship with God. And specifically, our relationships with our earthly fathers can affect our view of God's character, our view of our heavenly Father's goodness. Consider that potentially your default mode for viewing God's character might be similar to how you view your own father's character. To press the issue a bit further, compare some of the following questions of your relationship with God to the relationship that you have, or maybe the relationship that you had with your earthly father. Do you view God as emotionally distant? Is God gracious? Is he easily approachable? Is he for you no matter how you mess up? Can you come to him with your needs and your wants, all your desires, and know that you'll be heard and respected? Your answer to these questions could shed some light into your own prayer life. But the bottom line is this, and I think we need to strongly consider this bottom line, that we must understand that our earthly father, whether good or bad or somewhere in between, They are a poor reflection of our perfect Heavenly Father. Our earthly fathers are a poor reflection, and we need to continue to grow in our understanding and our grasp of God, our Heavenly Father, who is perfect and loves us. And look what else our perfect Heavenly Father gives us. 
Jesus says at the end of verse 13, how much more will he give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? This is interesting. Why would Jesus say that? Why would Jesus say, how much more would he give the Holy Spirit? Especially, I won't have you turn there, but in Matthew chapter 7, verses 7 through 11, Matthew records the same account. And Matthew himself says, he records Jesus of saying, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? So Matthew says, good things. Luke says, Holy Spirit to those who ask. So what do we make of this? Ah, but the two are actually in perfect accord with one another. Because if you think about it, the very source of all that is good is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the greatest gift that could be given to man by God. If God has given the Holy Spirit to us, he has given us himself. Having the Holy Spirit, we have everything. We have life. We have hope. We have heaven. We have God's boundless love. We have the Son's atoning blood. We have grace and peace in this world and glory in the world to come. And the Holy Spirit instructs us in prayer. He inspires and motivates us towards prayer. So in contrast with our first character, we see that God is the perfect friend, the perfect neighbor. But the question is, what is our response to this? Which brings us to our second character in the story. And that is the one, the man who needed bread. If we're asking the question, who am I in this story? This would be, this would be the person. So what can we learn? Two things briefly that we learn from this man. One is that he is needy and he is bold. And because God loves to give graciously to his children, we see that we can come to him with neediness and with boldness. We see the neediness in verse 5 and 6. The man came needing bread. It was a daily provision. But it was a bare necessity. And this follows in verse 3, in the Lord's Prayer, where Jesus instructs his disciples to ask, give us each day our daily bread. Do you recognize your neediness? And do you recognize that it's a good thing? We're needy for God's mercy. We're needy for his forgiveness. We're needy for the gospel every day. We're needy for his grace We're needy for his provisions. All the things even that we take for granted, the food that we eat, the shelter over our heads, we're needy for all of that because it is the hand of God that gives that to all of us. And God doesn't want us to have it all together in our own strength. He wants us as needy children. He wants us to come to him with open hands. I once heard a pastor say that he often tells his congregation this. He says, Let's all agree that none of us have it together, and now let's enjoy true community. I think that's a great statement. Let's agree. None of us has it together, and that we actually need each other, and we need God. In our friendships, our relationships, and our marriages, we don't have it together. We need to look to God. In our jobs, or again, maybe our studies, we don't have it together. We need to seek God in prayer. In our parenting, no matter what strategies we employ or books we read, we just don't have it together, and we actually need to look to God. With our spiritual disciplines, 
we do not have it together. And we need to seek God in prayer. Because God does have it together. And he knows precisely what we need and is able to hear us and to act on it. And think about Jesus. Who was Jesus gracious towards? It was always the needy. It was the widows and the orphans. It was the sick, the lame, the outcast, the marginalized, prostitutes, drunks. It was sinners that God was gracious towards, not to the religious leaders, those who seemingly had it all together. We are to come to our gracious Heavenly Father as needy children, but also we are to come with boldness. And we see this in verse 8. Verse 8 says that he will not give up, get up and give him anything because of his because he's his friend, yet because of his impudence, he will rise and give him whatever he needs. I must admit that I had to take an informal poll around the office to figure out how to pronounce this word, impudence. It's not one that I use necessarily in my vocabulary, though I vowed to try to use it six times in one week. I haven't come through with that at all. But impudence can be translated as, and some of your uh, translations might have this, shamelessness, boldness, persistence, or as one commentator put it that I really like, shameless persistence. We can infer from this that the man who came knocking for bread did not just knock once, but that he continued knocking. And that is what Jesus calls us to. Actually, to be like my children when they go to their grandparents' house. The minute the doors open, the van door that is, My kids run up there. One is knocking on the door as loud as they can, as fast as I can. The other one is ringing on the doorbell over and over and over. And the third one is peering through the window, (laughs) just waiting for that door to open. And that's what God calls us to, persistence. In verse 9, Jesus says this. He says, and I tell you, or some of your translations might say, so I say to you, This is important. This is a a declaration of divine authority. What's about to follow this is important. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. And then verse 10, he continues with a promise. For everyone who asks, receives. The one who seeks, finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. Can we bank on that promise? Yes, we can. If we ask, seek, and knock in faith, the answer will become plain according to God's will and in God's timing. Again, the key, God's will and his timing. But can we trust him? I think so. James 4.2 does give us some insight as well, though, and potentially a warning. It tells us that we do not have because we do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. There's good wisdom here for our prayer lives. And we have to understand also that God rarely gives us what we ask for right away. Why? Is it because he's mean? No, because he is wanting to build in us humble, genuine reliance and dependence on him. And we know that we can come to God with complete boldness because he already knows what we're going to ask. And indeed, in Matthew 6, 8, 
It says your father knows what you need before you ask him. It gives us freedom to come to him with anything because he already knows and he desires to be gracious to us. Now, let's look quickly at a case study in the scriptures of one that asked, seek, and knocked with utter persistence. We'll end with this passage. If you could turn to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. This is the story of the healing of blind Bartimaeus. Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. Verse 46. And they came to Jericho, and as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he had heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Many rebuked him, telling him to be silent, but he cried out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, Take heart, get up, he is calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your faith has made you well. And immediately he received his sight and followed him on the way. I love this story. It's a great picture of shameless persistence on the part of Bartimaeus. He cries out. Then the crowd silences him. At that point, I would be so tempted to keep silent for fear of shame. But he cries out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. When Jesus calls him, we see that he actually threw his garment to the side. He was eager to approach Christ. And what does Jesus say? He comes in faith, and Jesus heals him and says that his faith has made made him well. Jesus honored his persistent faith. Do we, like Bartimaeus, come to Jesus as needy sinners? Do we know what it is to ask and seek and knock, to truly wrestle in our prayer lives? What are the things that are weighing heavily on your mind that you need to ask and seek and knock? What are the burdens, great and small? Are they relationships? Are they money struggles? Job frustrations? Frustration in your own spiritual lives? Is it health issue? Raising children? What are the burdens that you have that God is calling you to bring before him? And are you quick to go to a neighbor or a friend in search of guidance or a listening ear while neglecting God, our perfect Heavenly Father? Who are your go-to people? Does your gracious Heavenly Father make the list? Is he at the top of the list where he belongs? The lesson of this parable is not that we nag God until he finally, we wear him out to where he just gives in and answers our prayer. But no, the point is that if an unwilling friend is willing to actually finally get up and give us what we need, how much more does our gracious Father desire to supply all of our needs? Obviously, the goal here is not an easy four-step plan to an effective prayer life, but rather to see God's character in a way that compels us toward him. God loves to give graciously. He loves to pull through.
parables, as we remember, call forth a response and a self-examination. So as we have talked about prayer and as we have looked at God's character, what is your response to the parable that Jesus has offered you this morning? Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are gracious. We thank you that with you it is never midnight. We thank you that you care deeply about everything that is on our heart and our mind and help us to see your character rightly that would compel us towards you. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anything that has been spoken that is not in accord with your scriptures or with your character, that it would fall on deaf ears. Lord, the things that are true and right, um, I pray that you would use to really penetrate our hearts and turn us toward you. I pray for all of us that you would, by seeing your character and your goodness, we really would be compelled even today to spend time seeking your face. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.